right, we're live and we're rolling, and this is The Real Venture. I'm your co-host, Peyton. And I am your co-host, Luke, and we are entering the world of business by starting a few companies of our own. So we decided to create this podcast as a platform so that we could ask other successful entrepreneurs the questions that we need answered in order to help our business grow. Every single week, we are joined by CEOs, venture capitalists, artists, co-founders, and influencers, all with one thing in common, they're young entrepreneurs. The only thing I'm going to need you to do is hit that subscribe button below so you never miss a conversation. Every single Wednesday, Luke and I are going to be right here, and we can't wait for you to join us. All right, Brian, thank you so much for for coming on today. Why don't we just start by you telling us a little bit about yourself? Okay. Um, well, right now I'm a venture capitalist. I've been doing this for 35 years and uh, still having a good time at it. I get bored easily, but not with this. And it's because it's a very challenging field. Um, despite the fact that you're highly selective in what you do and you do the best to do it, you fail a ma- major number of times, you know, almost half the time. So it, it maintains itself as a, as a fun kind of challenge. Um, I think one of the things that I like best about it are the exciting people that, uh, you know, that I interface with. Uh, so that's a lot of, uh, a lot of fun. And, um, I'm not too sure whether you want me to go into my background as to how I got into this or where I came from. Absolutely. Let's, let's unpack it all. Let's, <laughs> let's learn everything there is. <laughs> so I grew, grew up in a little town in, uh, in New Jersey and, uh, my whole life was football, basketball, baseball. I figured that's uh, <clears throat> right after having wanting to be a fireman, I decided I wanted to be a baseball or football player. Um, and um, went on to college where I where actually I played all three sports. So it was a year, uh, years when you could do that. It was not easy, um, but it was in the early 60s. When I got out of school, I you know, did the traditional kind of thing in those years and took a job with a large company. So started with a telephone company, your telephone company in, uh, in sales. And I got promoted pretty quickly to sales manager. I was a sales manager at 22 years old, the youngest in the bell system. But I wasn't really satisfied and figured I had so much stuff I didn't know. And uh, despite the fact that I got married right out of school and then a year later got our first child, decided to go back to school. And um, that's actually where I met your grandfather at Harvard Business School. And uh, after a couple of years there, um, got out uh, working with a medical products company and um, got intrigued with a doctor who was a potential customer of ours, guy who was in charge of cardiovascular research, the NIH. And he came up with an idea on ways that you might save people from dying of heart attack. Uh, Most of the people that die of heart attack die before they get to the hospital. And we had had an idea of a system of devices uh, that you could uh, use to prevent death. And I got intrigued and... um, and he needed a business person and so joined him. So I was one of the first, um, or three or four of us that, that really started the company. Um, so I was all of a sudden an entrepreneur. Uh, 
at a time when that was not very fashionable. Actually, even though it's somewhat fashionable today, uh, an entrepreneur was uh, pretty had a very negative connotation. Uh, I think yeah. Could you could you dive into that? You you touch on it a little bit in your book um, that I, I know you're that's going to come out soon. But why in this time period was it kind of you know controversial to be an entrepreneur? I think people looked at it as kind of a default place to go for people that couldn't get a good job, work for the bank, you know, or work for the telephone company. They'd start their mm-hmm. own business, and uh, it was kind of a it kind of meant running a shoe repair or pizza shop or something like that. It had uh, I remember being at Harvard that professor said uh, there was one course in entrepreneurship, when um, they stayed away from the word. Um, it's called management of new enterprises, but they were pretty overt in saying this is not what you're being trained to do. You're supposed to run Fortune 500 companies, and uh, you're not supposed to do these little little startups. Do you think today at Harvard Business School that perspective has changed? Totally. Matter of fact, it's a uh, it's a required course. I now understand in the first year entrepreneurship, which is amazing, and there must be fifteen or twenty different offerings in the two year period. Mm-hmm. Stanford that probably has you know even has twice that many. So it's it's kind of where when I graduated, kind of going into consulting or with a large company was kind of the thing to do. I would say it's, you know, right up there is one of the number one things to do, which of course usually spells, well, once it becomes the number one thing to do in Harvard Business School, kind of spells the death of it about to come, I think, sometime. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, one one thing that's been kind of kind of interesting, and, and I think a lot of our listeners can relate to this, is when you go work for those big companies right out of school, it's a very secure job. Um, you know, you have your healthcare, you have your 401k and it's safe. And, you know, when you kind of go out on your own, obviously that element of, of risk kind of comes into, into the picture. And do you think that that's also part of the stigma back in the sixties and seventies with the entrepreneurship? Like it was just an unsecured, unvalidated route to go. But pretty much, I would say, I remember my father was completely appalled at the whole idea. Now, he had worked for Republic Steel for some 40 years, and it really, they did take care of you, cradle the grave and um, all of the benefits, etc. And to do a startup was uh, sounded insane to him. Of course, today, as we know, I think, you know, essentially the security is in your, is in your own talent base. So people move from job to job, uh, and their skills are what are, are, are the security net. The companies no mm-hmm. longer feel a loyalty, nor does the employee feel a loyalty to a company to, to a lifetime there. Um, yeah. So without making a value judgment, it's a good, maybe a good thing or a bad thing, but it is what it is. Um, but, yep. but in those days, it was pretty scary to go out on your own. And, you know, and as I got into it, I learned, yeah, it was scary. <laughs> yeah. So you, so, you know, you kind of stumble into this entrepreneurial career with, with this medical, you know, backed venture. What, what kind of happened next? Where did you, you know, what was your next steps? Where did you grow this opportunity? So um, like happens with many ventures, we developed the technology to, used in the setting of a heart attack. And that technology involved 
developing a small device about the size of a pack of cigarettes that you could send your electrocardiogram over the phone on. That was a, a major a major feat because the integrated circuit wasn't available at that time. And you really had to make a custom integrated circuit. I had worked my way in and networked um, up to the president of ITT, Harold Janine at the time, and uh, as kind of a PR move, convinced him that it would be a good thing to do a good thing for healthcare and uh, got him to... Uh, uh, to agree to make a custom circuit for a pretty bargain basement price. We also had to develop injectors um, where people could take an injection of an antiarrhythmic drug in the setting of heart attack. Um, it turns out that we didn't really have the money, uh, that that system probably worked out, but we didn't really have the money to do that, a very extensive and expensive clinical trial. So we used a shorter version of it, and so it did not prove to be statistically significant. But uh, from that, we used that same technology, though, to develop the EpiPen, which I think a lot of people know, and that's for people that are having an anaphylactic reaction to a bee sting or a food can take an injection. That's now a billion-dollar product. So mm. that and a lot of other products did well. We did an IPO, took it public. Um, and then I got a call from a recruiter to come to a Fortune 500 company. And I was kind of ready to go. I had done this for 10 years or so. And uh, I, you know, I wondered what it would be like to go with a big Fortune 500 company. So I ran one of the divisions. Uh, I made some major changes there and also quarterbacked really a major acquisition uh, of Revlon's healthcare business and putting those two together and then was made president of the, of the company. So uh, I was member being petrified going with a large company, figuring it would be overwhelming. But I, I really found out that the entrepreneurial lessons that I learned were extremely valuable with a large company. I found large companies um, basically looked at doing improvements on current activities, make things 20% better, but they didn't think of whole new ideas or major mm -hmm. strategic moves. Why do, you, why do you think they focus on those kind of benchmarks? Is it because it's easy to report to your shareholders because when you're a large company like that, you know, obviously that's who you answer to, or does the risk of innovation and trying to do something just kind of scare people off because it could be a waste of money and resources? I think that it's, uh, you know, it's a natural thing to do what you're doing better is easier than doing all new things and carries less risk. I also do think the risk reward is out of line. If you take a look today at the venture business, uh, if in fact the, uh, you're, you're working in a venture and it works out, it can be worth millions and millions of dollars. If it doesn't work out, but you've gone at it properly, you can go on to the next opportunity. In the large company, if something works out, you probably get a 5% raise. If it doesn't, you could get fired. So I think, you know, there's an attitude almost in the, 
in many of the larger companies, and it's not easy to break, uh, of, I would call it instead of trying to win, it's a little bit more of a not losing attitude. Um, mm. So you try not to be associated with, with a project that doesn't work out. In the entrepreneurial community, really the second best answer to success is failing fast. So hanging yeah. on and is, is really not a good strategy. You're better to move on to the next one. Plenty of opportunity, uh, not enough good people to do it. So I think yeah. there's, a, there's a general bias. If I was to run my large company again, I'd probably get rid of all the research and I'd do, do it all with small companies because um, the productivity level uh, is, is significantly higher. And actually, there's a lot of data around to show that the, particularly in the pharmaceutical area, the number of inventions coming out of the small biotech is much higher um, dollar for dollar than major pharma. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. And it's actually kind of funny that you mentioned that because uh, we've talked about on this on this show uh, quite a few times the idea of being an entrepreneur. Yes. And it is, you know, being being the entrepreneur within the business. And we have a lot of listeners that I think are looking for opportunities to be entrepreneurs because they work at these large corporations and ensure the idea of quitting it all and going to run your startup sounds awesome. And you know, but for a lot of people, it's it's not realistic. So looking for opportunities of ownership within your big company and and kind of like you said, looking for new ideas and and trying to innovate. It's a really attractive option. And the added benefit, too, is the resources of your large company enable you to do things that, you know, the other guy who is bootstrapped for cash right now with a short runway can't do. So I definitely think in these smaller biotech firms, like you just kind of talked about, there are a lot of, you know, entrepreneurs that are doing really cool, innovative stuff um, because they can, and they have ownership in that. And that's probably why there's such a high volume of great products coming out of it. Right. That. And it's very difficult in a large company to have a culture, uh, to, to change the culture and the economics for that matter. You know, you may have one little tiny division that's doing something really cool could generate a value more than what the CEO makes, which makes for awkwardness. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. When, when you, you know, came into this, to this large pharmaceutical company and, and, you know, you talked about quarterbacking the, the acquisition and, and kind of moving up that way. It, it, were you being an entrepreneur in that, in that situation? Were you, you know, kind of running that as its own company? I would, I would say so. It was, um, I was running one of three divisions and um, then was promoted to executive VP and put in charge of uh, strategic planning. And one of my thoughts was that we really only had enough assets to do two businesses well, uh, for reasons I won't bore you with. And therefore, we should look at trading one of them so that we could augment our activities in one of the other two. Um, it was it. It was, uh, and the one I selected was really the product that started the company. Uh, so it was the kind of the grandfather product. So I thought I would get pretty negative feedback from the board, but did not. Uh, there was pretty good concurrence. That strategic move uh, enabled me when an, an opportunity came up to uh, to actually do that. 
industry. And it turned out the business that I wanted to sell was the grandfather business, the old business, but it turned out the business I was running was the one that needed to be sold. So I was in a position where if I pulled this off, I could be out of a job. But I figured, well, if I can pull this off and it works well, someone will want me somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. What what were some of the entrepreneurial skills that you acquired before that, that you were able to implement that kind of, you know, eventually led to the, to the sale. And obviously you had to do something right. If, if that was the exit that you had and then eventually moving up to executive. Um, I think the, the idea of, uh, you know, looking outside your, the business that you're in being, uh, awake, opportunities. So this is one that it was in the context of the an unfriendly takeover of Revlon. And uh, there were two bidders uh, for Revlon. And I remember one day reading in the, uh, the New York Times uh, and the Wall Street Journal, you needed both to get the story together, that essentially one of the acquirers was buying the business but had all of its pieces sold. And the business that they were going to continue to run was the healthcare one. So if you just did the math and deducted it, the healthcare one was grossly undervalued. Uh, so I went to the competitive company that was offering for it and said, I'll tell you what, we'll buy that healthcare part and made a, an offer. And that enabled that company then to up its bid and actually win uh, win the prize. So it was a fairly heroic effort, but one that really worked out well. Mm-hmm. So you, you know, so that sale happens and you, you move into the executive role and then ultimately you, after your, you know, journey with that business, you eventually moved into venture capital, correct? Right. Why don't you talk a little bit about that transition? Why, why would you go from being a exec at a large company into, you know, kind of reverting back to the entrepreneurial startup world? You know, what kind of went through your mind there? My great goal and desire was to run a large company. And then when I got there, you know, it was kind of disappointing in a way that it was the journey that was the fun being there was, yeah. was difficult. And, uh, you know, I remember thinking that, you know, people talked about bureaucracy and problems in the large company. I figured, well, if you're at the top, you can get away from that. And I quickly learned that you're kind of in charge of it. Um, you know, to some extent, uh, trying to get rid of policies and procedures, trying to generate an entrepreneurial atmosphere was extraordinarily difficult. There were, you know, incidents, I'll never forget one day in a situation where we had a serious problem with our German operation. I was on the phone with the the managing director there at uh, six at night, midnight his time, uh, and in comes uh, one of the top executives, says, I've got to talk to you, Brian. And I said, well, can't, can't it wait? We've got this huge problem in Germany. No, I can't wait. So I said to the German manager, can I call you back? Uh, I realize it's late. I apologize. He said, that's all right. So I said, okay, so Dan, what's the problem? He said, I just don't understand why my parking spot is further away from the HR vice president when I've been here longer. 
And that, along with a whole bunch of other little incidents like that, uh, endless meetings about things that uh, made no difference. It just, my wife had the best uh, example of that. She said, I don't know what's going on at work, but you keep hitting your snooze bar in the morning. So I figured I've got to find something where I don't hit the snooze bar. Absolutely. And, uh, so I decided to, to leave. I spent about six months figuring out what I'm going to do next. The goal being non-snooze bar hitting. And I discovered venture capital. I hadn't really heard or much about it. But as I looked around, it was, it was just ideal. I was, uh, did not want to be an entrepreneur again. And I didn't want to run the large company, but I love the entrepreneurial spirit. But um, the ups and downs, uh, being an entrepreneur, you know, I, I did not want to do again. So I found this, and instead of you no know, having to fix the broiler anymore, you could just dispense advice and experience on how to fix the broiler. It's a venture gap. There you go. You know, I think you know when you go through the when you go down the VC route, you have one of the most unique perspectives when it comes to entrepreneurship because you get to see the good, the bad, and the ugly, and other people go through it. And then reflecting back on your own experiences as being one, you like you kind of said, you really can relate and give great advice. And I think a lot of our listeners are always interested in you know when when they come up with an idea and uh, you know eventually there comes the point where they want to go out and raise capital and venture capital always comes up in that. So, you know, one thing I like to ask VCs when they come on is what are some of the things that stick out to you about entrepreneurs when they come in to talk to you? To me, to, to see that, um, you know, their commitment, and their attitude, um, their, you know, their will to win they don't always come with all the skills because a lot of them are young. They may or may not have them, but they can learn the skills. If they come with a bad attitude, I've lost more money with people with great skills, you know, Nobel Prize winners wanting to start a company, but with bad attitudes. You know, I can do this on the side um, that aren't committed uh, versus people that are really committed and work as a uh, – as a team are willing to work with people and, um, and, and work well with people, particularly working down. I mean, I find when I do due diligence on people, I spend more time asking people who work for them and spend almost no time on people that, um, that were their boss. Uh, in fact, I almost find it the other way, the extent to which they're quote unquote hard to manage, probably the more likely they're to be successful as entrepreneurs. So mm -hmm. I think having been there um, is helpful to me. I, I have an empathy for what they're going through. People don't realize how hard it is to be an entrepreneur. Um, simple tasks like, well, you know, why don't you just call so-and-so and get this done? You, you don't recognize that you're calling people who've never heard of you, that won't answer your call. How, how hard it is to even do the smallest things. And mm -hmm. um, you can't understand that until you've, you've been there. When the cleaning lady doesn't show up, you know, you gotta fix it. And I think that venture, I think that entrepreneurs should look 
and do a lot more diligence on venture capitalists. Uh, venture capitalists, um, they should look at the track record. Do they panic? Um, are they helpful or are they there to criticize? Um, mm. You know, I, re I really think our job is to help. It's not governance. You can get somebody to do the governance, but it's um, somebody that really understands what you're going through and can help you through it. Let's let let's dive into that a little bit because I think when when people are talking about VCs, all they think about is like, oh, I have to do all these things right to get pitched and then to get their investment. But in reality, that is such a small component of the relationship you have with the VC because once you enter into that agreement, you know, it's a three to five year, maybe even longer, hopefully, relationship. And that's kind of where the help and the nurturing comes in. So why don't you talk a little bit about what you know you as a vc do for entrepreneurs once you you know have invested in them and you know want to kind of embark on that journey with them right well i think there's this sadly this perception that if you've got a good enough uh, business plan and you got a great pitch that you can do on the elevator um that you know shark tank is a, is kind of uh, the enemy of reality in a way <laughs> Uh, yeah. Do you think Shark Tank has totally misconstrued people's ideas when it comes to pitching and sharing? I, the I think what it has done is put an emphasis on the idea. Um, and if you can just make a good pitch on the idea, it's kind of downhill from there. Um, mm -hmm. You know, my thesis is that, you know, and actually the name of my book is called The Idea is the Easy Part. Um so the perception is if you've got a great idea, really breakthrough idea, um, you got a great pitch and you get the money, you're on the 20 yard line. And, and I guess my conclusion is, yeah, you're on the 20 yard line, but it's your own 20. You got 80 to go. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's, that's really where it is. So um, I think these, these perceptions are, uh, uh, can be can be very dangerous. In fact, if you take a look at a lot of some of the successful companies, the ideas are either average. Um, for example, five guys is making hamburgers. It's kind of an average idea, but just beautifully executed. Um, Peloton. And why would you want to ride a bike in your basement watching TV instead of outside? It's a it was an okay idea for some people. And take Zappos. Yeah selling shoes on the internet is probably a bad idea made good by, uh, mm -hmm. by great execution. So I think that's, um, something that, uh, and I think entrepreneurs can look for that. We were involved in, in Visalign, a line early on, um, two very young people straight out of school. And, uh, I think there were, we were together with Kleiner Perkins, uh, worked with these people, and um, there was a lot that we could help on. There were contacts that we had in industry, you know, international contacts. We kind of supplemented the management team and also were mentors uh, to the entrepreneurs. And that's what mm -hmm. you deserve from the uh, venture capitalists. There's um, there are misperceptions in both ways, perceptions that venture capitalists are out to, um, you know, really take advantage of you, um, which really isn't the case. And the reason for that is it's not 
it's not only not nice, it's not pragmatic. You've got a five, six, seven, eight year partnership you're going to go together with. And if you were able to get a really good deal from the entrepreneur, um, they're going to find that out in a year or two from then, they're going to be totally demotivated. So yeah, uh, this is a partnership and uh, both sides have to work at it. So, uh, you know, we have, we have some members uh, in our, in our community, some listeners that are backed by VCs and we have some that are going through the process right now of pitching them. So what are some examples of, uh, you know, things that you should lean on your VC to, to talk through? What, what are some of the items or the thoughts that you should run by your VC, maybe go to them if, you know, as a resource? Is this while you're raising the money or after you've got the money? Both. Uh, I, you know, I think that, both. you know, I think VCs can, can benefit you at both stages potentially. Yeah. I would say, um, as you're, as you're, you're going out there, are, first of all, really do your homework to figure out who really fits with what it is that you're trying to do. Who has done similar type situations? Um, you know, when I see business proposals and it says, you know, copy number 1,182, highly confidential, you know, I immediately hit the delete button. So you need to network in, you need to, you should understand uh, a lot of the story that I've told you um, is something that you can read probably on our on our website. People should read those. They should know them. They should see that that what wow wow this this is interesting. He's been through same what I'm about to go through. Um, so and look at the at the track record and try to you know you're going to have to you're going to have to kiss a lot of frogs unfortunately to get the the money but but you want to try to have a really targeted approach and one in which you network into. Um, that's really important. It's important to talk to companies that the venture capitalist is involved in, has been involved in, find out, you know, does the guy panic? What's he like when the going gets tough? Uh, how much help did he give you? Where does he give you the help? So uh, I think that's, uh, you know, those are important elements. I think, uh, the really good entrepreneurs, you know, pick their VCs. It's not the other way around. And, um, you know, given what I said before, Peyton, about this being a five, six, seven, eight year uh, partnership, uh, just getting the money is not really going to be good enough. Um, mm -hmm. I really would take a worse deal uh, to do it with, uh, you know, with a top, top flight uh, VC that could, could help me. So if I was out looking for money, let's say I started today as an entrepreneur, given that I'm a uh, liberal arts graduate, I would be looking for somebody that knows a lot about technology, somebody that knows a lot of stuff I don't know, um, somebody that maybe has worked internationally a lot more than I have. So, uh, you know, look for somebody that's compatible, but also uh, value added. Mm -hmm. You know, I, th I think when you're building out your your founding team, you're bringing on your advisors, right? You're bringing those people on to address gaps in your skill set and understanding that you have. And, you know, kind of based on, on what you just said right there, it sounds like the VC could also come in and help fill that gap. Yes. And um, and it's tough. Above all, don't get discouraged because, it, you know, the volume, I think we at Domain, we look at like 1,500 deals a year. You know, we do seven. So it's a, and you know, 
were not right. I mean, I, th I think that the, the thing that I try to focus on most when we want to uh, be critical of ourselves is not so much where you failed, because companies can fail for many, many, many reasons. Um, but looking at those deals we didn't do, and that's really where the money is. We probably lost more money by not doing, by turning deals down that we should have done uh, than we have by losing money. Wow, that's that's powerful. Passing that's up powerful. on a 10X is 10 times more expensive than losing the 1X. Yeah, no, that... That's, um, you know, that's when you're, when you're in the reverse volume game, which I guess you guys are right. You guys are a funnel, not a, uh, not a spreader. Then, you know, you're definitely going to have, um, you know, you have to be very selective and you have to hope you're making the right choice. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes that doesn't. It's true. Um, but you have to, you know, you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. So you gotta, you gotta step out and, and take a chance on some of those for sure. And it's rarely that you've made a great choice that has spelled success. It's, uh, we, I think we looked at our data domain at one point in time, something like 56% of the successful companies uh, did not practice the, uh, the game plan that we were presented originally. So it's a quite amazing. Wow. That is insane. That's insane to think about. Brian, the, the, the last question that we always like to ask our guests is it's a simple one. And, you know, you've been around this world for a long time, so I'm excited to hear your answer. But simply, why are you an entrepreneur? I guess it's kind of a lifestyle. It's, it goes back to the, um, you know, the excitement of working with really, um, really brilliant scientists that you see entrepreneurs who are uh, very exciting. Who, they're not all, um, that's another misperception, they're not all um, extroverts, extreme extroverts. There are a lot of introverts, but they all have mm -hmm. multiple interests. You can talk to them about history, art, sports, whatever. Um, they're they're multi-talented, so it's, it's working with those people. It's so much fun. And um, in running down these, these opportunities, uh, and to some extent, uh, in a perverse kind of way, um, the failure rate is, is so high that you don't get bored. I don't get bored. Uh, you know, it's kind of like baseball. It, it a good baseball player is batting 300. Well, hopefully we bat better than 300, but we sure don't bat a thousand. That's for sure, and we fail a lot, and that keeps the the juices going. So it's a it's a very exciting business. I should be retired and um, playing golf and uh, and getting a tan in Florida, but I can't get this out of my system. There you go. Well, I hope uh, I hope that I have that same you know, feeling and, and, and vigor for it when I'm, when I'm your age. So I, I admire that. And it's, it's very impressive. If, you know, people wanted to learn more about you and, and, and what you do and, you know, maybe even be on the lookout for a, uh, a novel coming out soon, what, what can they look for and where can they find it? So I'm still a partner at Domain Associates. Domain Associates is on the, on the internet and uh, they can email me at dovi at domainvc.com. And I'll try to answer. I try to answer everything that comes in best I can. Awesome, Brian. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you, Peyton. Appreciate the opportunity. 
All right, guys. Uh, if you want to continue this discussion, follow us on our social media, our Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebooks. will all be in the description of this episode. Hop on there, shoot us a DM, hit us up with whatever concerns, questions, comments that you guys have. We'd love to continue building that community on there. Next, subscribe to wherever you're listening to this, iTunes, Spotify, Google, Amazon, Overcast, you name it, we got it. And the only other thing I'm going to add is... As you're subscribing to those platforms, hop on there, give us rates and reviews, especially on Apple Podcasts, five-star ratings and a, uh, and, and a comment go a really long way, helps us continue to, to climb up the charts and you know continue to, to spread this to, to all corners of the world and allow us to continue to bring on great guests. We really appreciate you guys for everything and we're excited to see you next week.